feel like a trolley dolly. If this had wheels, it'd be great. A bit of cup of tea on there, would be lovely. Cool. Well, it's, um, it's great to be able to uh, be with you um, this evening and uh, to be able to be preaching to you. Um, it's, it's been a long time, really, hasn't it? Um, not being able to come together. And whilst these are still unusual circumstances, there is something just nice about being together. And um, it's, it's just lovely to be able to be in the same space in the same room. I am glad to be preaching um, for many reasons. One reason is I don't have to wear that mask. mask. <laughs> and uh, I understand that you guys will be probably suffering a little bit uh, wearing that mask. Um, but um, we um, are kind of continuing a series. Originally, we, we thought we'd just uh, do the Beatitudes. And then um, we felt like, well, no, let's just continue on with the Sermon on the Mount. So really, we're just continuing in a series on the Sermon on, on the Mount. And um, one of the things that uh, becomes apparent in Scripture, of which Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount, is that, he, uh, uh, is that we, we often find that something about who we are precedes something about what we, we should do. So, for instance... Uh, Peter talks about this in his letter, 1 Peter 2, he says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for my own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of God. He then carries on in that passage and says it again. He says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, so again, he defines whom they are, uh, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against the soul. So over and over again in scripture of this pattern of saying, it's because of who you are that you should do this. Now, it's really important as Christians that we get it in this, right, in this order, because if we don't, then our, our righteousness will tend towards a, a workspace righteousness, because we think our doing will, will lead to our being. In, in other words, our, our doing will lead to our justification, us being made right with God. But we know that that's not true. God does something to us, he makes us something, and then off the back of that, he calls us to do something. And it's right that he calls us to do something, um, because we're changed people. And it's always in line with the character that he's given to us. And uh, what we've seen in the, in the Beatitudes is uh, Jesus, sort of, Jesus telling us who we are, the character that we should, we should have. We are to be pure in heart meek, uh, peacemakers, etc. This is the character that we're given, and now he's going to go on to the way in which we should live in, in the world. And particularly today, he um, identifies uh, the, the, um, the influence that Christians should have in the world. And he, and he makes these two um, amazing statements, really, when you think about it, especially in the context. Now, remember, he's speaking to some disciples here, um, who are, um, you know, are, are new in, in following him, really. They've not been following him a long time. And we, we, if we've read scripture, we'll know that these disciples have ups and downs in the next couple of years before Jesus um, um, uh, leaves them. But Jesus here says to them, you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. And we, we, 
we, we might be thinking, if we're getting ourselves into the context here, saying, well, wait a minute, how can that possibly be? How can these guys have any influence in the world? They're just a tiny uh, group of, of, of people. And this is a question that John Stott asks in his commentary. He says this, is this influence possible for such a small group of people in a world that seems dark and tough? What good can the pure in heart, the pure in spirit, the meek, the mourners, and the merciful have in this world? Would they not be overwhelmed with the evilness of this world? What could they accomplish whose, those whose appetite is only righteousness and whose only weapon is purity of heart? Are not such people feeble to achieve anything, especially if they are a small minority in the world. And we may feel like that today, no different than the disciples when they heard Jesus say this, that we might be in one sense pessimistic about our ability to influence the world from our low vantage point, but Jesus doesn't share our skepticism. In fact, it's the reverse. This is a bold claim of incredible influence in the world. He says to them, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. So we've got earth and world suggesting a huge scope and then salt and light defining how that influence might take place in the world. And it's hardly believable, really, that this rough and ready band of Christians, the disciples, are going to have any lasting influence in the world. Now, again, we can look back and see that Jesus was so right that the disciples had an amazing influence on the world that was to come. But maybe when we look at ourselves, we might take a different approach. We may think, well, that was all right for the disciples, but for us, we, we probably won't have such an influence and are not having such an influence. But the beauty here is that God delights to use the small and the weak and the foolish to show his power and his glory. Let me say that again, because maybe you're thinking, I feel small, we feel small. Jesus delights to use the small, the weak, and the foolish to show his power and his glory. And this is a promise for us as much as it is a promise for these disciples. So let me just give you some introductory comments about the salt and light before we unpack it a little further. Uh, the first thing to say is that Jesus used these two metaphors, and these are two um, uh, metaphors that in every Israelite home, uh, whether rich or poor, they would have understood. The idea of the, the importance of light in their home um, and um, also lights on the heel to guide their traveling, and then also the use of salt. Now, for us, maybe, we can understand light a little bit easier. Uh, we, we don't um, often light lamps unless we're trying to make a nice little ambience, uh, maybe for a little date uh, or, or whatever it might be. But most of the time, um, we just switch, we put the switch on and our room lights up. But we know the importance of it. If you've ever been in a, uh, a power cut and uh, it's dark, it's the evening, uh, not having light can be um, a, a difficult thing. But the use of salt may be, again, not so commonly used. Back then, it would have been used to um, just cure meat and keep it from, 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 from going off. 
we just put it in freezers and fridges and um, it stops our stuff from going off. But these are two everyday um, uh, realities, salt and light, that the disciples would have just very easily picked up on the, the purpose of it. That's the first thing. But then secondly, we see two distinct communities here. We see the church and then the earth and the world. So we have you, which is both the Christian, the individual Christian, but also the church itself, and then the earth and the world. And these are distinct from one another. The church is church being the people of God and the world being the fallen reality, fallen reality of people, the society that is not for God. And so the, there's, and what we see is there's a relationship between these two um, communities and it's defined by their distinctness and their contrast to each other. So again, they're two different types of community. Here's the contrast. The world is, is evidently a dark place. Why? Because there's little or no light uh, coming from it because it needs an external source of light to illuminate it, which we find out to be the church. The world is also as a tendency to deteriorate. It can't stop itself going bad. And requires, again, an external source, in this context, salt, to keep it from going off. The church, on the other hand, is a source of light in the darkness. It illuminates the reality of life. And also, salt preserves the world from social decay. And so, we see that the church has an effect of, of stopping decay and then like a, a, another thing that salt does, it adds flavor. It brings sort of a taste and texture, reality to life. So the church has this kind of double role to enlighten and to preserve the world. So these are distinct realities. Jesus talks about this in John 15, 19, when he says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as it is. Because you are not of the world, and I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So Jesus has this idea, as he talks later on uh, to the disciples, uh, to re-emphasize this. You know, the world and the church are two different realities. And he pulls us out of the world when we come to know him through faith in Christ, into this new reality, the church. And so the relationship that we had to the world before now changes and becomes a different relationship as Christians that we have to the world. Well, we're not to be uh, out of the world or, or like um, shine away from uh, the world itself. No, we're to be in it. But this passage tells us how we're supposed to, to be in it. Paul also speaks about this when he just talks about the relationship between the Christian and the world by telling us not to conform ourselves to the world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God that is good, acceptable, and perfect. That's from Romans 12, verse 2. So the Christian's way of living and the world's way of living are just two very different ways. And we as Christians are to be influencers in the world and not to be influenced by the world. Now, of course, this is a great challenge because our battle is not merely like outside of ourselves. 
In one sense, it's the world in us, the flesh, the unregenerate part of ourselves. And we constantly battle, battle this, don't we? And that's why we need to live in the context of grace um, and not merely in the context of law. Uh, when I was a young Christian and I didn't really understand grace, um, I remember giving my life to Christ on a whole number of occasions, making lots of promises. I'm going to follow you and I'm going to live for you and I'm going to be, you know, the shining light. And then within a week, I'm despairing at myself and thinking that Christ has not done something proper in me uh, and I can't work out what it is. And it's because I believe that he would make me so righteous in him that I, that I would never have to battle sin. I didn't understand that I would need to live in this tension of um, being something and yet not living up to the standard. And so again, we, we just when we go through this Sermon on the Mount, we've got to remember grace. Otherwise, it might come down on us like a, a, a tottering wall collapsing on us and we will uh, feel the, the weight and the pressure of it. Just one other uh, thing to, to mention here, and that is there's a condition on each of these realities, being salt and being light. Um, uh, Jesus says, look, the church and the Christian's effectiveness in the world will relate to these two things. So salt must remain salty and light must always shine. That's the sort of shorthand uh, version there. So there's this uh, condition for us. So we are the light of the world, but we must um, let our light shine. We are the salt of the earth, but we must remain salty. Let's just turn our attention then for a few moments to each of these um, proclamations. The first one is this. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It can no long, it's, it's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled upon under people's feet. In one sense, Jesus' statement here is very straightforward. You are the salt of the world. John Stott says that this means that when each community, both the church and the world, is itself and is its true self, the world decays like rotten fish or meat, while the church hinders its decay. Martin Lloyd-Jones says a similar thing when he says, the purpose of salt is to halt the decay, the putrefaction, or to put it another way, to perceive and to act as an antiseptic in the world. Both Stott and Lloyd pick up on the fact that the world's nature is always leaning towards decay. But the church is always leaning towards life and bringing that life into the world. So the first thing that the church and Christians do as salt is that they are to stop decay. Now, this is something that we naturally do when we're salty. It's not even actually telling us to do anything. It's just telling us what happens when the presence of salt is in the world. It will work in such a way as to hinder decay. The second thing that we can say that the church and the world's influence of the world is that it brings flavor. It's a subsidiary function of salt that it brings flavor for two um, meat or to whatever you put it on. Um, I'm told that it's very, very rude that when someone prepares you a meal, that you then instantly stick salt on it without tasting it because you don't know whether it needs salt. 
but maybe we're so attuned to do that that we just think uh, we know what salt does. It brings flavor. I, I like to have pepper and chilies, but this is not covered in uh, this uh, sermon from Jesus. Uh, so I don't know what they would do if Jesus was to use those as an example. But the idea of salt is that it just brings this flavor to the world. And we live in a world, don't we, where people are bored and they're always looking for new pleasures and new entertainments to bring flavor out in life. And those, those entertainments and those pleasures are fleeting and they pass away and they look for more and they look for more and they look for more. Um, and in one sense, the reason they're looking for more is because the world in and of itself doesn't satisfy. Um, but the church, this relationship that God that we have as the church with God, brings flavor and meaning to people's lives. The Christian who lives for Christ just brings something of that reality to the people who are watching, the people who are seeing. And so, for those of us who uh, are Christian here, um, we fulfill that, that idea of being the salt and light just by, by living as people who are full of uh, the word and full of spirit, full of grace and full of truth. When we live that way, then we will naturally both bring a stop to the decay of the world and also we will bring life and flavor to the world. Now, this is very, you might say, well, that's brilliant, Jez, that's, 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 that's lovely, but it's very general. So maybe I can just give you like an example of how in the past um, um, uh, that we've seen the church and the people of God really work in a way to prevent decay. So let me just turn your, your mind to um, the Wesleyan revival. So in the 1800s in England, poverty was widespread um, and the nation was on the verge of revolution. Uh, one out of every four women were prostitutes. Many of them were as young as eight years old. Thousands died annually from syphilis and gonorrhea. Crime abounded. Slavery was widespread and brutal. There was, uh, there was hope. Where was the hope for the culture that was in such a grip of darkness? Yet within those 1800s in England, the Wesleyan revival broke out. And these revival pulses were so dramatic that many historians would say that they would credit the ushering of the Victorian age in the early 20th, uh, 19th century, a time when the poor began to matter and doing the right thing became important. And a time when social order was restored in the beginning um, to, there was the beginning of hope for the English nation. And so we have this idea of how uh, the, the Wesleys not only preached the gospel, but lived the gospel, and how people's lives were changed as people started to take hold of the truth and the reality of who Christ was in their life. As they started to live for him and speak for him, it just naturally impacted the world around them. And in this context, it had a dramatic and amazing effect on England. Not just England, those ripples went to the US and in Scotland and in Ireland and other places. So we have this dual and inseparable reality that Christians are those who preach the word 
and live the word. Now, those two things are vitally important. And we talk about these over and over and over again. We've got to declare the gospel and we've got to display the gospel. Um, when we do those, we don't do it from ivory towers, we, uh, like this one. <laughs> uh, we don't do it behind closed doors. No, we do it in the world, in the marketplace, in the field, in the pub, in the home, uh, to the homeless, to the refugee, to the businessman, to the student. In all situations, when we are people who speak of the gospel and live for the gospel in such a way, it will lead to ripples in our world. Now, maybe that influence might just be on one person, but maybe the weight of God's people, not just this church, but his church universal, living for him, standing up for him, will make a difference that's much greater than we can on our own. Martin Lloyd-Jones um, says this, the glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. It is then that the world is made to listen to a message, though it may hurt, hate it at first. So there's this difference, this contrast that we are to Christians to have, and it's a natural contrast that we will have when we love the Lord Jesus with all our heart, with our soul, our mind, our strength, and we seek to live for him. But there is a condition here. What happens if we lose our saltiness? The effectiveness of us as salt is conditional, and therefore we must remain salty. And what does it mean to remain salty? Well, I'm going to point you back to the uh, Beatitudes and say what it means to remain salty is to live out our identity in Christ, our character in Christ that are laid out there, that we are to be peacemakers, that we are to be meek, that we are to be uh, gentle. We are those who seek and thirst after righteousness. We are those who endure persecution with, with great joy and hope. We live a, a other and radical life, and when we do that, we remain salty. Now, the temptation is, in terms of trying to be effective in the world, is that we try to diminish the difference between the church and the world. And we say, well, if we make ourselves more attractive to the world, if we want to make ourselves more attractive to the world, the best way of doing that is to become more like them or more appetizing to them. And so we get rid of the things that make us different. That is just a recipe for the disaster. And you can follow multiple denominations of churches where that approach has been taken and their demise has been swift. Within hundreds of, hundred of years, uh, denominations have either passed away or become basically irrelevant. And that's normally when they forsake the truth and the reality of the gospel and all that Christ stood for, his words and his proclamation, when they take them out of context and make them mean something else, when we fudge it on difficult issues that are real, really present in our world. We need to stand differently. Why? Because of who we are, because of the character that God has put in us, and therefore because of who he is and his character. To say another way, we must remain Christ-like. We do not want to assimilate into the world or to be contaminated by its impurities, its ideologies, its beliefs, its values, its patterns. If we do that, we will lose our influence. 
Now, it might seem that churches who do that gain traction. And we might say, well, why don't we just do what they're doing because they're gaining traction? But numbers and seeming influence is not the same as real influence and, and real kingdom growth. Now, we want it to grow. I'm not saying, therefore, every church... Don't hear me right. I'm not saying every church who is large, therefore, is selling out. Not at all. Absolutely not. Um, but we just have to be careful that we don't go down some of those tracks and find ourselves being attractive to the world, but not influencers of the world. And so, as we think about this idea of remaining salty, it's really about remaining united with Christ, standing up for what he, you know, standing up for what he believes and what is important to him, and then living it out by the power of the Spirit and by the truth of his word. Now, these are gifts that God has given us to achieve these and to accomplish these things. We need the word to lead and guide us what it means to be salty in the world and what is the influence that we should have. And we need the spirit to empower us to overcome our own flesh and the battle within to keep on doing this day after day after day after day. So that's the first thing. The second thing then is the light of the world. And this is what it says in verse 14, if you've got your Bibles or your apps open there, he says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to the whole house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So Jesus introduced this second metaphor with the same pattern. Because of who you are, live like this. And to live like this, there is a condition for how you do it. So in one sense, the first metaphor is a kind of negative restraining influence in the world. But the second metaphor is a positive increasing um, influence in the world. Um, Jesus declares that we are the light of the world. Now, we need to understand this in the context of Jesus also saying that he is the light of the world. Now, we know that Jesus is the true light of true light, um, but his shining, his light um, shines in us so that we are his lights in the darkness. Now, light does not derive from us, but it does dwell in us. It doesn't derive from us, but it does dwell in us. And he has put his light by the presence of his Holy Spirit in us so that we now become sons and daughters of the light, which is God. So both are true. He is the light of the world and we are the light of the world. Why? Because his light is now in us. We become his lights in the world. So in what way does light impact the world? Well, there's three things we have here. First of all, it exposes the darkness and reveals the hidden things. Imagine a room in darkness and then you switch on the light. It illuminates that room and everything in that room um, is revealed for what it is. The Christian, if they shine their light in the, donk, uh, in, in the darkness, become a contrast because of the difference of light in darkness, inevitably, it exposes the reality 
of what's around it. And so the Christian, by their true nature, is an inevitable thing. We cannot help but bring light into the darkness. It's who we are. It is what we do, but it's more than that. It's who we are. And the life that we live is so utterly different that it, that contrast should be seen in the world around us. Now, that's going to put us at odds with the world. And that's not a comfortable place to be as Christians, is it? If you've ever experienced that awkwardness where maybe in your workplace you've had to stand up for something that you feel that Jesus would stand up for, and yet it goes against the grain of what's taking place. I remember Jeremy telling us about the way in which um, it was hard for him to, to say, a challenge for him to say in his workplace, uh, if I'm on furlough, then I, I can't do work for you. And this was in the backdrop, wasn't it, of other people who probably felt like, well, I, I will do work for you. Why? Because maybe they thought, I will get an advantage in work. I'll, I'll be able to progress because the boss will see me and they'll see that I want to work for them. So this is a good thing. And yet, there could have been potential loss in that and a challenge in that. That's in one way in which uh, it can be a challenge to be the light in the darkness because it brings out the reality. Secondly, what we see, the second function here is that not only does it reveal the hidden things, it also explains the cause. Our light gives an answer to the questions the question of what is wrong with the world that has been baffling great thinkers of our time. The light explains man's biggest problem, our estrangement from God, our broken relationship with God, our, our desire to live for ourselves and not for God. And this is the light that the Christian has. They have personally experienced the reality of what it means to see the cause of their own heart and turn to Christ and to see their problem and therefore call out to Christ for the answer. Our world is in darkness. Again, if you read Romans 1 and Romans 2, you're going to see Paul explain this reality that the world is in decay and it seeks to um, live for itself but the light of the gospel brings it out into the open and, brings the, and, and shows the reason for why the world is in such a dark place. And so again, these, both of these function puts us at odds with the world. Why? Because the fallen man, again, we're told in Romans, loves darkness and hates the light. And so, again, if we go back to the uh, passage just before this about persecution, we can see that there's a link between the passage before and this passage, which is, uh, you will face persecution. Why will you face persecution? Why? Because you're going to be salt and light. But at the same time, as I mentioned before, the church, we will be strangely attractive as well to those who, who, who are seeking God, those who want something more in their life, who recognize their problem. And then just quickly, one final thing here is that there is another function 
which it shows the way out of darkness. Now, I don't know whether you have ever been into a hotel room and um, you, you've uh, maybe you're, well, you're staying the night, uh, you've visited somewhere and you're staying the night and they've got these lovely blackout blinds and you're there and you've had a great sleep, but then you just wake up in the middle of the night and you think, I just need the bathroom. Um, maybe you're, you're sharing with your, your husband or your wife or sometimes in twin rooms uh, at a conference, I might be sharing with somebody out and I think, I'm not going to switch the light on because I don't want to wake them up. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to find my way to the bathroom uh, but you're kind of disorientated, aren't you? <laughs> you think you know where things are, but it's unfamiliar to you. And then you just trip over your own suitcase or their suitcase, or you bump into the door, you t you're on the wrong side of the door, you're trying to open it. And in the end, you just think, I'm just going to switch the light on because I'm making so much noise, I should be waking up not just the person in my room, but the people in the other room. Well, it's a bit like that for us as Christians. When we, um, the world is... Uh, wandering around trying to find its way out to make sense of life and wherever it goes it keeps tripping over itself and, and making a mess but when we switch the light on when the light of Christ through us shines it starts to show us the way to the bathroom or in this sense the way to salvation yeah in Christ that's important we we are to point as the light to Christ we are not the light itself the church is not the the, uh, what in one sense it is, the, it's the fruit of the relationship with Christ that we get to be part of his family with other people. But it's really that relationship with Christ. Now that needs to be important for us as we think about as we grow as a church plant. What are we putting forward? Are we inviting people to come to church and enjoy church? Are we inviting people to come to Christ or enjoy Christ? The latter. That is what we're seeking to do and we have to be careful to always be shining the light onto Christ and not onto ourselves or onto the church itself, as if the church is the hope um, of the nation. Christ is the hope of the nations. We're just pointing to Christ in that way. So we are to be salt and we are to be light in this world. But again, he gives us two conditions here. He says that we are to be like a city on the hill that cannot be hidden. And again, the city was on the hill, and in, when, when the lights were on in that city, people from the distance who were looking for their journey could see the place, the destination they were going. The church is to be like that. Then he also gives this metaphor of being in the house, and so we're, we're to be like a, a lamp in the house that brings light to the whole of that house. How, um, and uh, we are not to sort of... Uh, put something over it um, uh, to, to dim that light, but we should keep it open and exposed so the light has house, uh, the light, um, the house has light. And so we're saying, look, um, there's a temptation for us to keep our light hidden, whether it be uh, just the reality of uh, not switching our lights on in, in, in the context of the city or putting something over it. There is that temptation to keep our heads under the, um, uh, in, in the parapet and, and not be in the world or influence the world. In one sense, you might suggest that the monastic movement was this sort of movement where it would say, well, let's remove ourselves from the world so that we continue to be bright lights. And they were bright lights, but they were shining in the context of themselves. And so in this sense, it's no good being a light if no one really sees it. 
And maybe that's a challenge for you in your workplace or your neighbours. Have you, have you ever spoken to them to say that you love Jesus? That Jesus is the one who leads your life? Um, that you, you, you are a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Christ? That might be one way where we might be tempted. Keep your head down. Only share if you get asked. But this light is more um, positive than that. Uh, it's to, to be proactive, as it were, to go out. Well, and how are we to, to live this out? Well, in this passage, it says that it, this light is to be seen, to shine. Um, and it says uh, that they might see your good works and bring glory to God. So it's our good works that are to uh, shine. And this idea of good works, Stott says, is really just a, um, a general expression to cover everything that a Christian says and does because he's a Christian. Every outward and visible manifestation of his faith in Christ. So there's these good works, both word and deed, that we are to, to be showing in the world. And when we do that, our light will not be hidden. I'm going to bring this to a close now. What Jesus says to us is amazing. Because of who we are in Christ, we are both salt and light. It's who we are. In one sense, just like salt is salty and can't lose its saltiness, um, uh, so we are salt and we can't lose our saltiness because of who we are in Christ. Now, we can, we can become ineffective in being salt, but that's who we are. And, and we live out those realities of who we are. And it's just by us being Christians and by following the, the words of, of Christ, by being full of grace and truth, by being filled with the Spirit and by following his word, just the everyday general gospel living of Christians, just normal stuff, we will be salt and light. And the challenge for us then is to go away and reflect. In what way am I salty to the world around me? In what way am I light in my workplace, in my home, in my household? Now, we don't reflect on these things to be crushed. No, God's grace is sufficient for us. But we want to live those things out, don't we? We want to live for Christ and for his glory. This is an amazing influence that, that Jesus says that we have. Um, uh, a remarkable way beyond what we think that we can have. And so again, if we feel small and weak and unable, let us, um, let our hearts be encouraged that our simple living out the truth and reality of the gospel will lead to people glorifying God, will lead to people coming to know Christ, will lead to people asking questions about Christ. Maybe the culture in your workplace might change. Maybe if you're, if you're somebody here and you, you're the only believer in your household, it will, maybe it will lead to your household being changed. Again, what God does in us, he wants to do through us. Because of who we are, it will lead to our doing. We can have great influence in our world, even though we may feel small and weak. Amen.
Amen.